0: Hi everyone, Pamela Log here, your host of the Energy Transitions podcast. If you enjoy listening to our bi-weekly podcast, make sure to hit the subscribe button and take a moment to leave a rating or review wherever you're listening. This will help us spread the message and connect with our community. Thanks again for listening to the Energy Transitions podcast from Inlet and Friends. Hydrogen is proving to be a disruptive force within the power sector. Technologies are developing at pace as the world strives to meet decarbonisation goals. In order to establish an effective hydrogen economy, however, it's critical to apply the lessons learned over the past few decades of renewable energy development. To discuss the hydrogen economy in more detail, I'm joined by Professor Emmanuel Kakaras. Executive Vice President, Next Energy Business, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, EMEA. The professor shares his insights into what is needed for a future hydrogen economy and also delves into the Takasagu Hydrogen Park. My name is Pamela Log, and you're listening to the Energy Transitions Podcast. Professor, thank you for joining us today, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, I think we just need to start off by getting an understanding of your history in the R&D space. When you started out your career, was hydrogen a hot topic? Was it on your radar? And if not, what else were you focused on initially?
1: First of all, thank you very much for having me with you today. I'm really excited for on our chat. And uh, I, when I look back, I think that it hasn't been so many years that I'm in business, but uh, I've spent my time. And uh, I think, although, you know, historically I was the youngest professor in my faculty, which is not any longer the case, but at that time, when I started, but in the 90s, the focus was more on energy efficiency and environmental protection. So we have done lots of works on uh, NOx and SOx and so on. And in parallel, this uh, greenhouse problematic pickup speed and evidence start to accumulate. I was fortunate enough to hear one of the first talks back in 87 on the first evidence then the Mauna Law evidence early 90s became apparent and uh, suddenly energy researchers we became confronted with the challenge of decarbonization so for me it was very easy to adapt from energy efficiency to and environmental sustainability to the real sustainability and decarbonization and uh, that was the first time where we confronted uh, with hydrogen at that time as a zero carbon energy carrier. You know, hydrogen has a long story in the energy sector. It's not the first time. Uh, Even in MHI, we are using hydrogen as a fuel for our rockets for how many years now? So handling hydrogen as a fuel is not a new thing. The first attempt to reinvent hydrogen was to use it as a zero-carbon fuel made on the assumption that we can produce abundant hydrogen in the sense of, you know, using cheap energy, nuclear energy, and so on. And I can recall that the European Union has done this big initiative on hydrogen as a fuel in the early 2000s. It was called International Partnership on Hydrogen Economy, That was in joint effort with the U.S. Uh, We have, early 2000, we have uh, joint forces, but um, the market didn't respond as we thought. And the reason was that somehow we were aiming to more and more uh, on the hydrogen as a fuel for transport. And in that context, there was massive infrastructure requirement and then electromobility started. So, the first effort of hydrogen as a, as a massive zero carbon fuel was um, losing interest and uh, speed. And then people reassessed the urgent character of decarbonization and they put the emphasis more and more into renewables. So it was zero carbon. It was Massive deployment of renewables and thus the necessity of energy storage that made the change into the hydrogen economy. By putting these two elements, that actually hydrogen is the most effective in terms of duration and size energy storage method that we can possibly think of plus the uh, zero carbon potential, which is uh, obviously that recreated the interest and the trend and the hype on hydrogen, which we are witnessing right now. And I am convinced that we are learning from the shortcomings of the first effort, early 2000, while assessing the priorities where to target with hydrogen first.
0: Professor, thank you for taking us through that that timeline and for for setting the scene. It's interesting to see how hydrogen has developed and become a core focus of the energy sector. You know the world is trying to balance decarbonisation and energy security and there's still a lot of work to be done in the hydrogen space in terms of investments, and, and the projects are still relatively small. How do you see the hydrogen economy developing from this point forward?
1: It's a very valid point because uh, investments, hydrogen uh, is part of the infrastructure business. And infrastructure means upfront capital investments which have to be paid back by the increase of hydrogen use. So in order to develop all the infrastructure, and the infrastructure around hydrogen is on the one side on the transport and distribution of hydrogen, whether this is pipelines or low-pressure pipelines, similar to the gas business, but on the other hand, Uh, there is the need to create uh, the transport infrastructure on the commodity side. Because not necessarily where we produce hydrogen at most competitive terms, we have also the consumption of hydrogen. So there is also the need to develop a transport infrastructure and carriers and all this stuff on the hydrogen business. That being said, it's always a wide, wise approach not to do all the investment up front, so especially in large infrastructure. So you need to create demand. And demand creation, and this is one of the lessons learned from our past, as I explained, has to happen where hydrogen is the most competitive, green hydrogen, carbon-free hydrogen, of course, the most competitive substitute. And the obvious use is in the industrial uses where you are already using hydrogen with a high carbon footprint, the conventional hydrogen, what we call gray hydrogen. And this has to be substituted by the carbon free alternative of hydrogen, whether this comes from renewables or from uh, decarbonized natural gas or whatsoever. So that means that we we are starting for a, a single point of consumption but substantial consumption, especially in the industrial sector. This creates the demand that would justify the infrastructure creation, the gradual infrastructure creation, to feed the market with this carbon-free hydrogen. And then you gradually enter into the retail business. And with the retail business, um, I refer to the hydrogen as a fuel in the transport sector, or hydrogen as a fuel in the domestic sector. And at the end of the day, different regions of the world will follow different patterns of using hydrogen. But the start is more or less from the same, always substituting current hydrogen use in large industrial consumption.
0: We've got a hydrogen ecosystem that needs to be developed In terms of around the world or specific projects around the world, are there any regions that are getting this right?
1: I think it's about demand and supply. Uh, On the supply side, uh, we definitely, and uh, let me focus a little bit more into green hydrogen because things are simpler there. Green hydrogen means converting uh, renewable electricity to hydrogen via electrolysis. So wherever you have abundant renewable electricity potential, you can produce competitive uh, uh, carbon-free green hydrogen. So on the supply side, it is clear. Uh, it will be the usual suspects with a higher renewable sp- uh, potential, Middle East, Australia, uh, Africa, uh, the Northern part of Africa, and then as an add-on to the offshore wind uh, in the Northern part of Europe and, and so on. So that's the supply side mapping. Now the demand side, is more interesting because it comes in different regions under a different pattern. What I mean by that, we have regions where energy demanding industries are at home in competitive terms. In this energy demand, not necessarily in Europe. There, the substitution of hydrogen, for instance, in green steel projects, could create an additional demand if the consumers opt for greener products, That's the discussion on green steel and green aluminium. And that will make a twofold supply route, one from the overseas market towards Europe, not as hydrogen, but as an end product, and the local production in Europe as a green product at a premium price, what is what we are currently looking. So the industrial use of hydrogen could focus both the local domestic production of Europe and the import market towards Europe. Now, there are other applications which are equally interested. Uh, Let's look, for instance, on the transport sector. We have all this discussion about dropping fuels, you know, the the renewable, the, the biodiesel discussion and so on. Hydrogen can play a big role as an additional vector for drop-in, substituting hydrogen in the refining process. It's a low-hanging fruit. You can have it at a very competitive terms. Moving a step further, you can have synthetic fuels that are carbon-free by utilizing either green ammonia or or, uh, methanol or renewable CO2 conversion Uh, always with hydrogen, and this green fuel, and we have now a piece of legislation in the European Union, the Red 2, Red 3, and the implementing acts for that. This green fuel has a market in the transport sector, in the aviation sector, in the marine sector, and so on. So you see that there are other than power sectors in Europe that would stipulate the demand on hydrogen. And then? We have the big challenge of decarbonization at a higher percentage, which cannot be realised without the hydrogen introduction. So I see this stepwise approach to create always more and more demand, start for the 20 million tonnes that the Europeans want to consume annually every year, to move to a higher amount and a more even more higher amount. And then establish uh, a zero-carbon fuels economy as a component for the decarbonized society at 2050.
0: Thank you for explaining that to us, Professor. Clearly, there are quite a few steps to the process before we can get to a fully functioning hydrogen economy. But if I can... Perhaps just take a moment uh, to circle back to power generation. Can you talk to us a little bit about how disrupting hydrogen has been and how the the gas turbine market specifically has responded to hydrogen and the needs to decarbonize?
1: It's a very interesting question for somebody who has spent a a considerable part uh, of his life teaching thermodynamics because in introducing green hydrogen in a power process is not the most efficient uh, way of using primary energy. However, it's the most efficient way to do energy storage. And if we all agree into that, then things become more simple. And what do I mean by that? Yes, the round-trip efficiency of a hydrogen-fired gas turbine is obviously much lower than a natural gas, a fire gas turbine, and it is much lower than the round trip efficiency of a battery. But given the state of the art and given the timeline to 2050, if we wish to achieve what we call deep decarbonization, and which in practice means safeguard the stability and the uninterruptibility of electricity supply and the stability of the grid in a world, in an energy system where renewables will take more and more and more part on not only on the capacity, but on the energy demand, you will need in, uh, inevitably balancing and backup power and energy in the cases, as a form of an energy storage to complete the picture And that you can only achieve with a hydrogen-fired gas turbine. Therefore, the inherent value of the production of a kilowatt hour with a hydrogen-fired gas turbine combined cycle is not just determined by, you know, the second law of thermodynamics and the round-trip efficiency. It's also determined in its value as an interruptible dispatchable energy source and we don't have many more alternatives than that and that's the difficult business case which however is realistic and gives us a perspective on the associated cost so in essence now by introducing decarbonized thermal power that means hydrogen fired gas turbine combined cycles we can have a realistic assessment on the uninterruptible power supply costs in our system. And that's the beauty of that. And of course, this does not come without extreme, breathtaking, I would say, not extreme, breathtaking achievements of engineering related to the stable and reliable uh, hydrogen combustion in the gas turbines. So it's not something that we pick it up from our drawer and say, okay, let's put it now into work. It requests engineering effort, uh, groundbreaking research, especially in the controlling of the NOx emissions, but we have it right now. And because we master the combustion technology in that way, we can bring this missing piece of decarbonization in the CCGTs and make decarbonization happen without compromising on the uninterruptibility, on the secure energy supply around the clock.
0: Professor, I want to take a moment. You mentioned breathtaking engineering and I I just feel that that's really captured my imagination and perhaps captured the attention of our listeners because we don't always understand what goes on behind the scenes. We read the reports on the efficiency that's being achieved or how much hydrogen is being incorporated with the natural gas. What does it take in the R&D space to get us to where we need to be in terms of gas turbines?
1: I think that uh, it's a non-negligible piece of R&D that has been done in the last, I would say, more than 20 years. So that's not an achievement that happened overnight. I have to, to praise uh, my own company, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, because we have the um, advantage to be active in national, in Japanese funded R&D quite at an earliest stage. And that is uh, obviously to be explained because Japan as an energy dependent economy with uh, limited indigenous energy sources were always forward thinking uh, in order to secure energy supply at zero zero emission. Therefore, there was an ambitious combustion uh, research program in the past years and the past decades which has matured to the point that we can uh, today claim that 100% uh, combustion of hydrogen in a gas turbine without any compromising on the on the efficiency or the emission of pollutants that means maintains Today's state of the art of the emissions uh, of the emissions of 25 milligrams NOx and the 64 percent efficiency that uh, the current uh, CCGTs are offering and so on is today possible, and we have given uh, evidence not only in lab and demo scale. We have already demonstrated uh, that uh, the mixed combustion of 20 or 30 percent or this year we are announcing 50% mixture uh, of uh, hydrogen with uh, uh, with natural gas, which is uh, by definition a milestone um, for science and technology and for the taxonomy approach on thermal plants. And uh, we have already a, a very consistent roadmap towards 100%. Uh, hydrogen firing, which will take place at commercial scale well before the end of the decade. And the prerequisite to that was twofold. A, secure combustion. Uh, you know, I'm a combustion engineer by training. So um, I, I'm uh, flashback and flame detaching and uh, pressure oscillations due to combustion was, you know, your the usual things that uh, uh, have to be addressed whenever you enter into a new fuel like hydrogen. So that we have mastered. We have mastered also the technology to maintain uh, the low level uh, NOx conditions that were the trademark of gas turbines. The, the, The reason that gas turbines dominated the thermal power scheme, was because of their low emissions and the compact character of the engine. So all this have to be maintained at the same level, no compromise, and then uh, I think we are ready. And in fact, the industry is more ready than the market itself, because this this hydrogen readiness from our side is given, but from the supply side of hydrogen, we have still work to do.
0: That makes sense. And I think, you know, I wanted to talk to you about some of the challenges hindering the development of hydrogen and power generation. And, you know, as you said, the technology is there. But how do we encourage the uptake and the implementation of this technology?
1: It's the economic aspect. It's a business case. Where we are right now, we are are heading in a a world where, uh, because of a number of reasons that everybody knows, we are now at higher energy prices. There is good news and bad news on that. Good news is that at a higher energy price level, newcomers in the energy market like hydrogen seem more attractive than in the past because the price gap Is not that big. The bad news is that, uh, especially on the renewables and and especially in Europe, we are witnessing high renewable electricity prices that make the indigenous production of green hydrogen by electrolysis less competitive than we thought in the past. So, as long as we will be witnessing high renewable electricity prices hydrogen will be uh, still quite expensive and because it's expensive it comes first where the intrinsic the substitution value is higher and that's the industrial use and the and the transport sector at least in europe in other places of the world we will see and uh, the, we have the example of MHI in ACES and Magnum project in the States where we have abundant and competitively priced renewable electricity. Therefore, its conversion uh, to green hydrogen, its subsequent storage and utilization to deliver around the clock renewable zero carbon power at, uh, for California, for example, is uh, today a commercial reality. So there are already use cases of power generation from green hydrogen in regions other than Europe. And I think uh, as we will see the gradual rationalization of uh, materials and energy prices, we will be in a position to enjoy more and more the hydrogen use also for the power sector.
0: Absolutely. And as you mentioned earlier, Professor, the, the process and the, the timeline of development is, is much faster, which I think is encouraging. I do want to spend a little bit of time on the R&D side and, and some of the exciting stuff that Mitsubishi is doing you know, in researching for this podcast, of course, I had to uh, come across the Takasago Hydrogen Park in Japan. And there's, there's some really interesting cutting-edge stuff going on there. Could you maybe tell us a little bit more about some of the technology being tested and, you know, some of the lessons being learned at that park?
1: Thank you very much for asking this question because for me, Takasago is a, a unique piece of uh, integral research, development, demonstration, and deployment, which I haven't seen anywhere in the world because in Takasago, which is the production facility of the gas turbine, we have next to each other, the R&D facilities, the testing, the prototype testing, the manufacturing of the real machine, the real engine, and the testing and the commercial validation in a full-scale power plant, which runs under full dispatching commitment of the local utility of the region. That means, in simple words, whatever product Mitsubishi is producing, it has inherently the reference of the industrial use in the Takasago power station. That means it has two years of commercial operation as a reference before reaching the the market. And this is a a unique advantage that proves the well-known reliability of the MHI machines. Now, the recent uh, years after the commitment of MHI towards carbon neutrality, uh, we have taken the decision that, especially for zero carbon fuels, we have to demonstrate the hydrogen infrastructure in Takasago, and I told you that we uh, we are making the, the 20%. We have already in the U.S. demonstrated that, that industrial case. Uh, uh, we have the 30%, the 50%. So we have to have a site to demonstrate all this hydrogen value chain. And what we have decided is we are currently building what we call hydrogen park in Takasago, uh, which for me, it's, it's like the researcher's dream because we have the we are building all different sorts of electrolyzers next to each other we have uh, building the infrastructure for storage and compression of hydrogen and, and next to that we have uh, the hydrogen fired gas turbines both at uh, at industrial scale that means our smaller machines from 40 to 4200 megawatt and the big guys, the big uh, heavy duty gas turbines of 500 megawatts each, which will be f- uh, supplied with hydrogen uh, uh, locally produced. And I'm very happy that my colleagues in, uh, uh, in Japan have decided to call it hydro- uh, Takasago Hydrogen Park because in my, uh, in my lectures, I'm referring to that uh, as a, the Disneyland of the hydrogen researcher. So uh, I would sincerely uh, like to invite you to come with me in my next trip to Japan to visit Disneyland. And uh, uh, even you are not coming from the R&D world, but you will be uh, as excited as myself to see this magnificent piece of engineering at the different stages, the most efficient ways of electrolysis from alkaline to uh, membrane to solid oxide, name it, the most efficient combustors. Uh, It's really a a huge um, investment that proves that we are confident that hydrogen is here to stay at that time.
0: Professor, I think you've just made my day, I can think of (laughs) nothing more exciting than the, the Disneyland of engineering. And I tell you, if, if I do get the opportunity to visit, I will be on the first flight to Disneyland with you. Um, so thank you for, oh, we... for sparking that enthusiasm and, and just sharing that with us.
1: Thank you very much for having me and I really enjoyed the discussion with you. Thank you very much indeed.
0: Thank you for listening to this Energy Transitions podcast brought to you by Enlet and Friends. Visit enlit.world for more episodes. See you next time.